Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alicia Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Also brought to you by Wesley Willis. Handful of stuff we're going to get into today in a world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. We're going to touch a little bit about a couple of the worst managers in the history of the New York Mets franchise. And I don't, and I'm surprised that people don't bring this up too often, but it's a little tease. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that I'm not so excited about the return of sports, not just baseball, which return returns in less than a week. We got football eventually in a horizon, basketball and hockey, following baseball. But I'm going to give you a couple reasons right now why I'm not so excited about the return of sports. There's a couple things that kind of bother me. Um, obviously, with baseball, the proposed rule changes, the runner at second base, the continuous need to try to appease fans that may never be drawn into this game again. There's a generation of fans, maybe not all of them, are just aren't going to like baseball. They're not going to be dying to go to a baseball stadium once the doors are open and fans are allowed to come back in. Yet baseball feels the need to have to go out of its way to try to appease them, to say, hey, if we tinker with this, if we tinker with that, maybe these people have no interest in baseball anyway are going to go out there and support the sport. It's not going to happen. Baseball is for baseball fans, just like football is for football fans. World football, soccer is for soccer fans. Embrace your audience. Understand that not everybody is going to like your particular sport. Don't change the rules of the game just so you can bring other people in that wouldn't have had any interest anyway. That's number one. I'm not excited for the new baseball rule changes. I'm also not excited when it comes to hockey and basketball when it comes to the bubble-like settings and just the weird things that you're going to see going on there. It's just, to me, it's just not natural. Now, what do you say if you're going to come at me and say, well, what do you propose, John? And the answer is, I don't really know right now. But what I look at, and as we look in, we're looking at baseball, which next time we do a show, likely, maybe we'll do a show before that, maybe we'll do one after. You know, I don't really care. But we're going to have live baseball games played in stadiums with no fans. We're going to have thrown in crowd noise. We're going to have pictures, cardboard cutouts of fans and where's Waldo in the crowd to make it look like there's people that are there. And you have a truncated baseball season that's going to be played in a, a little more than one-third of what a 162-game baseball season would entail. And here's the part that I want to bring up about that. We're thinking of 60 games. And what have we talked about? You heard the point that I opened up with talking about the need to bring in fans that aren't going to be interested anyway. What's one of their biggest criticisms? Number one, the game is too long, but also there's too many games in a baseball season. So we go out there and we try to have a 60-game season because we need to. Nobody's going to dispute the reason why we need to have a 60-game baseball season as opposed to a 162-game season. We want to make sure that people are healthy. 
We want to make sure that the spread of the virus is not what it was before. You don't want players getting sick. You certainly don't want fans getting sick. But what is this going to do as we get close to the next collective bargaining agreement? You understand that the players and the owners are at odds over money. And unfortunately, they're going to be fighting over money until the end of time. But when you think about fans that think that 162 games is too much to have when it comes to a baseball season, you know, you're going to hear more of a push to try to get... And hey, what's going on, Nat? Thanks for tuning in. The thought is that we go from 162 games to maybe back to 154. Or maybe we go back to 140 or 130 or 120. Or maybe for some reason, we believe that 60 games in a Major League Baseball season is good enough. And we start going with this going forward. The next collective bargaining agreement, we decide that baseball, Major League Baseball is only going to be 60 games long. And then all of a sudden, all the virtues that we look into the game, you know, the amount of hits you can get in a full 162-game season, the home run records that we talk about, the sanctity of the batting average and all the stats that we try to make out to be more holier than thou are all of a sudden changed. And we look at the many different things that we're going to see over the course of this 60-game baseball season. There's a chance that a player or two can hit 400. You know, you're talking about somebody maintaining a 400 batting average for about 180 at-bats. That's possible. You know, a player can slug, you know, 700 or 800 over the course of two months. You know, pitchers, you know, you can have an earned run average of, you know, a, a buck and a quarter or, you know, 1.2 or something like that. Because those are all things that happen over shorter sample sizes. Now, these are going to be recorded as full baseball seasons. And I think the people that are more into numbers may want to put an asterisk next to that. But my concern is what's going to happen going forward. And I am a little concerned that as we get close to the next collective bargaining agreement in Major League Baseball, the 162-game season that we have grown to know and love that has existed in Major League Baseball and in the American League since 1961 and the National League since 1962 is at risk of being severely cut. We survive with an 82-game NBA season. We survive with an 80-game National Hockey League season. We survive with 16 games in a National Football League, go into 17 games, and maybe forward a couple more but 162 games is viewed by many of the naysayers when it comes to baseball as being a little bit too much. And I may agree up to a certain point, 162, maybe a lot, six months of baseball. You know, if you play five and a half months as a bad baseball team, it's kind of a waste of time. You know, you're, as a fan, you're excited when the season starts. You sure are likely to get behind your favorite team as long as they're good. And your team falls out of the race. It's a long time to think of the dark and gloomy days of summer. Football season starts and finishes, it seems like, in a heartbeat. And sure, it's the amount of weeks. It's the amount of games. 
It's the fact that there is a buildup for each game. You know, you got, you know, somewhere between four and seven days between each one of your National Football League games. It's a buildup. There's a, that big crescendo and a recap of the game that just happened last week. Stays in your system for a couple days. I get it. I get why football is probably, for a season length, is probably perfect. Probably the right amount of games and the right amount of time to have. You want to add a game to it? I'm okay with it. But there's, there's the talk about baseball and just the amount of games that are played. And we understand from a safety perspective, I would say, hey, maybe even if baseball had gotten started earlier or the willingness was there to finish perhaps a little bit later, maybe into November, I, I hate to say into December, but, you know, to spread out off days if you really were concerned about the player's safety. And you think about those that could probably care less about the safety of anybody. And I'm sorry to go after this group of people again, but if you think about the owners in really any professional sports, you, know, you become an owner of a sports team because you, know, you at least inherited some success. You have some financial, you know, you know, windfall that's going your way, that's helping you out, that is giving you the ability to own a sports team. It could be your own success. It could be a company you own. And the reason that you own a sports team is because of the amount of money that you have, the amount of money you've been able to raise, your ability to earn money, your ability to make profits. Nobody's making profits in a sports stadium without any fans. And that's got to be pissing the owners off. The owners can't stand this at this point. They're going to do anything they can to put fans in the stadium, not because they want to enhance the fans' experience, but because they want your money. And somewhere, whether it's going to be NFL owners, and remember, NFL owners in some cases are third, fourth generations of the same family that have owned the team for 50, 60, 80 years. They're considered more of the old guard, the old ownership. Remember, we talk about baseball. We talk about the Charlie Comiskeys of the world, those that own baseball teams but didn't have the players' interest in mind, let alone the fans. So I am concerned when it comes to the owners of the National Football League Maybe opening their stadiums to fans, but not necessarily caring about your health and well-being. Now, if there happens to be a baseball season and there's no fans, a baseball postseason with no fans, the NBA and NHL playoffs with no fans, if the National Football League opens up its season when it's expected to and their stadium doors are open and they're allowing you as the fans to fill the stadium at your own risk, I guarantee you, Fans are going to fill those stadiums because fans have been starving to catch a live sporting event in person. It's been since the month of March, since there's been any sort of fans in attendance in any sporting event in a game across the country of the United States of America. Fans are dying to get back into stadiums. Think about it. You were you know, bound up in your house for a couple months. As soon as your government, you know, your governing body says it's okay to leave your house, you go out there, not only leave your house, but you leave your house recklessly. You leave your house not using the proper PPE. 
with gloves and masks. You, you could care less about people you haven't seen in months getting all close and up in their face and hugging and kissing them and shaking their hands. The very reason that you were bound to your house because of fear of getting this virus has led to the virus being spread in states and areas where they've been opened again. So I expect the same thing to happen when it comes to sports. Sports open up. Sure, you're going to go through maybe a couple months without any fans, but I promise you, and if the NFL isn't the first to start this, if the NFL doesn't say, you know what, we're going 100%, fans are going to be in attendance in our stadiums all year. I think baseball is going to follow suit. Basketball and hockey, if they're still being played at that point, obviously we're talking about as we hit what we'll call the halfway point here at Pass Ball Show, cuckoo clock the whole thing. Just a reminder, past ball shows brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and also our new sponsor, Wesley Willis. So just finishing off this point, talking about fans being in stadiums, because I think it's going to be something that we're going to naturally gravitate towards. I'll be honest, if I have a chance to catch a sporting event in person, I'm likely to do it. I am concerned about my health, and I think every fan should understand that they are going into a stadium if the stadium is opened for whatever it is that their favorite sport is at their own risk. And they have to understand that. You have to accept the fact that, you know what, you may be going into a stadium with somebody that is sick. Somebody may have the coronavirus and be asymptomatic and not have a fever and may pass that virus on to you. And you have to weigh whether or not you want to make sure or put yourself in the best position to not get this virus or take the risk that you may in order to see the sporting event that you know and love. And we tend to gravitate towards fun as opposed to our own health. Look at the way we live our lives. Look at uh, obesity as it runs rampant in this country. Look at all the different things that we do that aren't healthy or in our best interest that we do because we enjoy it as opposed to know that it's in our best interest. We go to eat food. Most of us are more inclined to eat sweets than we are to eat greens and kale and stuff that we don't think tastes very good. Same applies to our health and well-being as it comes to sports. We're more inclined to go to a stadium that has as many as 40,000 seats and 40,000 other people that are there risking our own health to see an event that we enjoy than worry about the risk of being sick. And the owners of all professional sports teams, football, I think is going to lead the way. But I wouldn't be shocked if baseball said at some point in the season, yeah, we're going to let fans in on, you know, quote unquote, experimental basis. But knowing that they're going to be able to raise the prices and get people to come in regardless, fans are dying to come in to the stadium. They are. You know, whether they are asymptomatic or not, whether they are at risk or not, they're dying to come in there and watch their favorite sporting event in person. And that's another reason why I'm not so excited about the return of sports. You know, to watch it on television, sure, it's a live event, 
I'm not going to get the same feeling out of it. And maybe you got to fast forward to the playoffs. Maybe watching the basketball and the hockey playoffs, as you know, they'll start a little bit sooner because their regular seasons are almost at the end. You know, maybe that'll get me more excited into watching baseball. Question's going to be, the owners are going to be extremely inclined to want to put fans back in the stadium. And it's not because they want to enhance your experience. It's because they know that they got you by the balls dying to come into their stadium. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's fans outside the stadium. Maybe you have to use some sort of security to keep fans a certain distance from the stadium. I may want to watch my favorite baseball team on opening day. I may want to drive to City Field in, in New York City in Queens. And if it's safe enough, maybe I'll park my car somewhere close to the stadium where I can listen to it on the radio and just know that I am close to the action that's going on. And I'm not the first person that's come up with this. I'm not the first person that's done this across the country. There's been, you know, live soccer games. The WWE has been, uh, you know, held in certain parts of the country where there have been fans that have stood outside the stadium in parking lots. Whether they're in their car, whether they're outside the stadium, it's kind of the new version of, hey, I was there. I'm probably going to do it when it comes to baseball. I want to be as close to the action as possible, even if I'm not allowed in there. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and a solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of programs, such as by charge or admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I, I found this pretty fascinating thinking about the managers and the history of the New York Mets franchise. And while the beginning of this topic may sound like it's a little bit boring, I came to the conclusion that two of the best managers in baseball history, two managers that are very well known for their careers and their longevity as Major League Baseball managers, and you know, if you're gonna rank maybe the top 10 or top 20 managers of all time, were probably two of the worst managers in the history of the New York Mets franchise. And the Mets, who have a, what, a four-something winning percentage, have a history of being the most lovable losers in all Major League Baseball. They've been known more for their losing than they have been for winning. And who would have thought that the two best managers, when you look and you're ranking them in baseball history, Casey Stengel and Joe Torre, were probably the two worst managers in the history of the New York Mets franchise. And I'm not just exaggerating when I'm saying that. Casey Stengel had a 302 winning percentage, which is one of the worst amongst any manager who managed 500 or more games in one spot. You can talk about Casey Stengel and the 10 AL pennants he won in 12 years with the New York Yankees from 1949 to 1960. And that was one of the great runs in the history of all professional sports. That's up there with the, the, the Boston Celtics when they won 11 championships in 13 years. It's up there with what the Patriots have done. You can talk about any other Yankee run. Casey Stengel deserves every last bit of credit for his dominance as the manager of the New York Yankees from 1949 to 1960. Before that, he managed the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Boston Braves slash Beats. 
you know, less than inspiring results in both of those two spots. Now, you talk about Casey Stengel when he comes to the New York Mets and very likely inherits the worst team in the history of all professional sports. And that's not all on Casey. I'm not here to criticize Casey and say that he took a good team and ran it into the ground. That team was not built correctly. It was built to draw attention more than it was built to actually go out there and win. National League Baseball coming back to the city of New York instead of building through the draft and bringing young players and creating their own stars, the New York Mets were about bringing in players that the fans knew. They wanted fans coming into the stadium to see the likes of Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder and Richie Ashburn, Don Zimmer. You hear all those names. Even Yogi Berra came back for a brief cameo to play for the New York Mets in 1965. It's interesting as you look back at it, and obviously if this was to replay it and go back in history, jump into DeLorean, crank it up to 88 miles an hour, and sit there with Doc Brown and Marty McFly, and restart the New York Mets franchise, you realize you probably would have done it in a different way. And would you have hired Casey Stengel? Would Casey have been brought in there as your manager? Is this the guy that you want to lead your team of young players? And you would hope over time, as you get to the years of 1963 and 64 and 65, that the players kind of grow a little bit together. You start to see a nucleus. And you start to get excited about the future of the New York Mets franchise. Pretty similar to the Houston Astros of 2010 and 2011. They're rebuilding. They're starting from the bottom. Over the course of the next couple of years, you're going to start to see the fruits of the hard work that was put in. The Astros culminated with a World Series championship in 2017. And I understand you're going to hear a bunch of discussion about cheating, yada, yada, yada. But the bottom line is that when you go through a full-blown um, simple Jack rebuild, you're going to have to go through some growing pains. But within those growing pains, you want to see some signs that the team is improving. And that didn't happen under Casey Stengel. And one of my mentors, one of my idols, one of the people I look up to in the world of sports broadcasting, Howard Cosell, said it the best. Casey drew a lot of attention to himself, but wasn't necessarily successful. Fans of the New York Mets franchise forever are going to look at Casey Stengel and love him. Casey was a great dude. Casey was great for a soundbite. Casey was excellent with the media. Bill Parcell said, you're only as good as your record says that you are. And Casey Stengel's record with the New York Mets from 1962 to 1965, with whatever excuse you want to put into, was one of the worst of all time. And you could say it's because he inherited the worst team of all time. That's fine. You want to put it on the, you know, the general manager and the ownership of the Mets for poorly constructing a baseball team, that's fine. But you can't give Casey Stengel a pass 
and state that he was a good manager. Overall, his whole body of work, he's a Hall of Famer. He was great with the Yankees. He was not a good manager with the New York Mets. His results were not good. And this is a results-driven business when it comes to the world of sports. And let me throw this one in there, too. Casey Stengel doesn't get to go out on his own terms in 1965, and it was unfortunate. I know he had the broken hip, and he got to a point at age 75 that he had to walk away. Casey Stengel doesn't get a chance to walk out on his own terms if he's not Casey Stengel. If the Mets hired Wes Westrom as their first manager in 1962, he probably would have been fired by 1963. If the Mets hired Mickey Calloway as their manager in 1962, he would have been gone by 1963. Casey Stengel gets his lifetime contract with the New York Mets as their manager, number one, because of his track record as the manager of the New York Yankees, and number two, because he's Casey Stengel. And you heard me last week talking about Tim Tebow. I'd love to see Tim Tebow earn a chance to play in the major leagues, but I don't want him getting to the major leagues just because he's Tim Tebow. I want him to earn it. And the same way I'd like to look at Casey Stengel. Does he belong in baseball's Hall of Fame? Absolutely. Was he one of the great characters and personalities of the game of all time? Absolutely. The life of Casey Stengel was a very well-lived one. From his days as a player with, you know, for John McGraw and the Giants, to the fact that he managed the other three New York baseball teams. Won seven World Series championships and 10 pennants for the New York Yankees. He was a legend. He was an icon. He was a hero. All those things could be true, as well as the fact that he was a terrible manager when he managed the New York Mets from 1962 to 1965. I throw in the likes of Billy Martin and Leo DeRocher, and you watch them take over subpar teams over the course of their managerial careers. Billy Martin did it everywhere that he went to. If Billy Martin was the manager of the New York Mets in 1962, they may have still lost 120 games. Would that team have been a little bit better? I'm not going to guarantee you that they wouldn't have gotten better. Billy Martin had that ability to figure out what makes his players tick. How to make players that were may not be as good perform a little bit better. Look at what he did in Texas. Look at what he did in Detroit. Look at what he did in Oakland. None of those teams had any business finishing the season with over 500 records, and Billy Martin got it out of them. Leo DeRocher did it with the early 40s Dodgers teams. He did it with the Chicago Cubs. He did it with the Houston Astros. Now, he inherited a good San Francisco, uh, New York, then San Francisco Giants team, and I think DeRocher was gone by the time they moved to, to San Francisco, so I stand corrected. But Leo DeRocher inherits a very good New York Giants team, just like Stengel did with the Yankees, and he succeeded. DeRocher won a World Series in 54, won a pennant with the Giants in 1951. But looking back on it, and I know it's sacrilegious to say this, it's not a popular statement to make. And I'm not really saying this with the intention to piss people off. 
But there was another, you know, talk show host that ranked Casey Stengel as the number five, the fifth best manager in the history of the New York Mets franchise. And I think that's completely asinine. It's just, I just think at the very least it's ignorant, not factoring in that Casey Stengel's performance in the whatever, the three plus seasons that he managed the New York Mets was awful. If I'm ranking the Mets managers as the best of all time, for this franchise, I'll probably go Davey Johnson one, probably go Gil Hodges two, Bobby Valentine three, Terry Collins four, and I feel real confident about those four in that order. But when it comes to number five, I gotta go a long way before I mention in Casey Stengel. Yogi Berra led the Mets to a World Series in 1973. In fact, the seventh game of a World Series couple of breaks and the Mets win that game and they're World Series champions, you look at Yogi Berra in a lot different of a light. Willie Randolph led the Mets to 90 plus wins, had a winning record his entire time as the manager in the New York Mets. He gets judged for the collapse in 2007, but his performance as the manager in the New York Mets was much better than that of Casey Stengel. So was Jerry Manuel. So was Joe Frazier. And I get that they inherited better teams. But they knew that going in. Casey probably had an idea that the team he was inherited was not going to be very good. If not, he wouldn't made that statement. Hey, can anybody here play this game? And of course, he always had a way with words. And I think we're talking about two separate things, particularly when it comes to Casey Stengel. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Joe Torre in a minute. But the aspect when it comes to the how Casey Stengel is revered in the history of baseball, and particularly by Mets fans, you could say all the positive things about Casey Stengel, and you could also add the fact that his performance as the manager of the New York Mets was not very good. You have a 300 winning percentage as a coach or a leader in any sport. That's not good. You know, Burt Bell, the first commissioner in the history of the National Football League, had a, what, a sub two winning percentage as a coach in the National Football League. He's in the Hall of Fame. So is Casey Stengel and his record with the New York Mets as their manager. Now he's not in there. Obviously, Burt Bell isn't in the Hall of Fame for as bad of a football coach as he was. He was a pioneer. Casey Stengel is in because of what he did with the Yankees. He inherited a good team. Casey Stengel proved that if he had good players, he could go out there and win World Series championships. If he had bad players, well, you know what? You can't really judge anybody worse than him because he did as bad as anybody could do. Like I said, Casey Stengel can be revered in a positive light for everything that he meant to New York baseball, even with the New York Mets franchise. But in the same statement, you could say, without putting the guy down too much, that he did a terrible job as the manager of the New York Mets from 1962 to 1965. Now, Joe Torre, at age 36, becomes the Mets manager in 1978. may have been a little bit out of left field, 
may have been something that you, you, you know, may just may not have been ready for yet. And I'm sorry, Tori took over at 77 as player manager. The Mets trade Seaver or traded Seaver that year. Also traded Dave Kingman. Mets franchise is gone. Jerry Kuzman is gone within the next year. Mets don't have a whole lot of talent in those late 70s teams. The fans know they stopped showing up. Joe Torre, as a new manager, a very good player, a popular player, doesn't have the same charisma as that of Casey Stengel. So fans aren't paying attention to the Mets. And Joe Torre has, what, a 405 winning percentage. In his, what, four-plus seasons as a manager of the New York Mets. Joe Torre belongs in a Hall of Fame. What he did with the Yankees was outstanding. He had some good years with the Dodgers and, you know, even the Braves. He took the 82 Braves to the playoffs. Joe Torre may have learned from his experience as the manager of the New York Mets. and may have helped him in Atlanta. He didn't have such good results with St. Louis. Think about it this way. Joe Torre with the St. Louis Cardinals was right smack between Whitey Herzog and Tony La Russa, two Hall of Fame St. Louis Cardinal managers. Now, Torre's in the Hall of Fame, but because of what he did with the Yankees. Joe Torre proved that if he had good players, if he had the best talent, he could lead that team to the World Series championship. Now, you may say it's not fair to knock Joe Torre for what he did as manager of the New York Mets. But can you reasonably say that he did a good job there? Team lost a ton of games. They were probably expected to. But anybody could have managed that team to the results that Joe Torre led that team to. And once again, you may say, hey, it's not fair. It's not fair because Joe Torre didn't have the right players. It's not fair because M. Donald Grant dismantled that team and traded away Tom Seaver. If Tom Seaver was on that team, maybe they would perform a little bit better and would have at least been a little more competitive. That's great. But once again, you're judged by your results. And the Mets have had nine managers in the history of their franchise manage the team for 500 or more games. And the reason why I think this stands out is you're saying, all right, well, this is a sample size of at least three full Major League seasons. Guess which managers had the two lowest winning percentages in the history of the franchise? One, Casey Stengel at 302. And number two is Joe Torre at 405. The two worst managers in the history of the New York Mets franchises are Hall of Famers Casey Stengel and Joe Torrey. A little bit of a recap of the show today. And as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Passball Show brought to you by Wesley Willis, by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I'm not so excited about the start of sports coming back. I, I do think the resonation within the crowd does make a difference. And I understand that for safety reasons, we're not going to have fans for a little while. 
the change in a baseball season, a 60 games, the putting a runner at second base, having a pitcher, a relief pitcher come in for three batters. All very controversial rules as we're looking at it in a game of baseball. I'm not excited about that. I'm not excited about a shortened season and the results kind of being compromised. A little bit of an asterisk. You have to put by whatever happens. But listen, team that wins the World Series championship, they, they won competing against everybody else that was doing it the same way. 60 games is 60 games. It's going to be different. Thinking about the owners at some point, whether it's the NFL owners or baseball owners or, you know, hockey, basketball owners, letting the greed get to them, start opening up their stadiums to fans. Once this happens, we have to understand that it's not a matter of safety. It's going to be an, uh, a situation of enter at your own risk. I wouldn't be surprised if you have to sign a waiver before you go into the stadium. I don't want to hear your stupid lawsuit when you contract the coronavirus. You understand that if you leave your house, there's a chance that you might get it. I don't want to feel bad for you. And uh, Casey Stengel, Joe Torre, the two worst managers the Mets had in the history of their franchise. We'll be back with you next week. Um, we're going to do a little enhancement. I'm going to get a light for the camera. We're going to get a little propelled microphone. A couple different things we're going to do effects-wise with the Passball Show. Uh, if you check out JohnPielli.com to see all the little things that I stand for. Um, top 100 offensive position players of all time. The book you know, is just about done. I can't wait to get it published and released and distribute it out to people and go on talk shows and discuss all the reasoning behind it. This is the Passball Show. We'll be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.